Please remain in Deuteronomy chapter 4. I'm doing this as an introduction as on Friday um, I had planned on teaching through this section and um, by God's providence I think he has something um, else for us this morning. Hopefully as it was being read in Deuteronomy chapter 4, you notice a series of questions that were being asked. Notice verses 7 and 8, and I'll read those again for us. Actually, I'll start in verse 6. God's laws, keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sights of the peoples, who, when they hear of all those statutes, will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. And here's the question. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us? Whenever we call upon him. And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I have set before you today? These questions are are asked in a way where the answer is so obvious. There is no other nation. There is no other God of man's imagination that is like the true and living God. Obeying God's laws of the Mosaic Covenant would be a powerful evangelistic tool to the nations at large. The nations around Israel would take notice. They would notice the righteousness and nearness of God. Of, of the Israelites. And then skip forward to verses 32 through 34 for the next big set of questions. For ask now of the days that are past, which were before you, since the day that God created man on the earth, and ask from one end of heaven to the other whether such a great thing has ever happened or has ever even been heard of. In fact, what Moses is doing here, he's calling for an eternal and universal survey. One end of heaven to the other. From the day God created man up till now. And what is this survey to entail? Well, verses 33 and 34. Did any people ever hear the voice of God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and still live? Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself in the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war? With a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes. Survey one end of heaven to the other. Has there ever been a God so powerful as to deliver and to redeem? But I really want us to focus on what it says in verse 33. Has there ever been a God so gracious 
you heard his voice. He spoke to you. And yet you weren't consumed. You weren't killed. God didn't annihilate you. What does all of this have to do with us this morning? We have to search our hearts and souls. And I ask you the question, are you utterly amazed that God has spoken to you through his word? And you have lived to tell about it. Or a simpler question, which I think gets right down to the heart of the matter. Do you believe that the Bible that you hold in your hands truly is God's word and that he still speaks to you through it? Imagine if you were there at Mount Sinai. Imagine if you audibly heard the voice of God. You saw the mountain on fire. You saw the great terrors. You you, you saw even and heard God say, don't even touch the mountain or you will die. Yet consider what Peter said. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 21, he writes, For we do not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. For when he had received honor and glory from the Father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven for we were with him on the holy mountain. Pay attention. And we have something more sure, more sure, the prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy is ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter literally was there, he saw Jesus transfigured. Light emanating from him. His clothes wider than what we could ever imagine. He saw something spectacular that I don't even think words can fully convey. And he heard the voice of God the Father speaking. And yet there in that firsthand eyewitness account, he says, we have something much more sure. We have the prophetic writings. We have the word of God. This is far more sure than even our experiences. Even an experience like what Moses and the people of Israel experienced that day in Mount Sinai when they heard God speaking from the fire. So I ask one more question 
if we believe the Bible truly is God's inerrant, sufficient, authoritative word, wouldn't we be compelled by God himself and our own conscience to tell others about him, to share God's word with others? An experience like that surely would, wouldn't it? We share experiences that are far less dramatic than that. We get a little bit of good news and it it goes out to everybody we know. And yet we have the greatest news. This morning I want to give you the tools to biblically share the heart of the Bible with others. And so the title of this message this morning, the sermon this morning is the apostolic method of evangelism. And we will spend our time looking in Acts chapter 2. So I invite you to turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 2 and we will read verses 14 through 47. Acts chapter 2. Beginning in verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you. And give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days shall be, God declares, that I will pour forth my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above. And signs on the earth below. Blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, 
I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and is buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ that he would not be abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up and of that we all are witnesses being therefore exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel. Therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what must we do? Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is for you and for your children to all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourself from this crooked generation. So those who received the word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and they had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with gladness and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Father, we ask that you would uh, open up to our heart wondrous things from your word. May we behold you in a clear way. Um, strengthen our hearts and give us a, a greater love for people around us so that we would proclaim your wondrous truths, the gospel, uh, first of all, to our own hearts this morning, Lord. Secondly, to our neighborhoods, our families, those we come in contact. Give us a genuine, deep concern, not for this world, but for the worlds to come. May we see people not, not just in the physical realm, but, but in the spiritual souls that need to be saved. Souls that need the truth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. This morning... 
I want to give you seven keys to the apostolic method of evangelism. All true evangelism will have these seven elements. And I hope to draw them straight from the text so that you may see that this truly is what God commands. Look in verse 14, and that brings us to our first key point. We must, number one, speak as an ambassador of God. We are called to speak as an ambassador of God. The context of this and and, and looking through everything, when people saw what had happened on the day of Pentecost and the Holy Spirit coming in and and filling these men, indwelling these men, and and they were speaking in, in foreign tongues, they looked at what was going around and they they thought they were drunk. And we'll get into why they thought that in a little bit later on the second point. But out of the confusion that was going in the crowd, Peter steps up, bold, courageous. This was not the same Peter who had three times earlier, 40 days earlier, had denied Jesus. It's a changed man. God had opened up his eyes to the word. He now has the spirit of power indwelling him. God had spent many years making this man for this moment. Verse 14. But Peter, standing with the 11, just first of all in this, We can learn, as he's standing with the 11, yes, Peter is the spokesman, but the other 11 disciples were there with them. What Peter was saying, they agreed with. And so as a sub-point, as we're speaking as an ambassador to Christ, we must have an orthodox message. We shouldn't come into the Bible and say, wow, I see this. And then we search other scriptures and we search what other people have said and nobody else has come to that conclusion. God has not given you new revelation. You are wrong. This was the faith. This was the correct interpretation. What Peter said was accurate. He did speak for God. He took a stand with the other 11. What Peter said, they all agreed with. So we must preach an orthodox message. Now, how does he speak as an ambassador? Well, with an orthodox message, but secondly, he he lifted up his voice. Don't you see that in verse 14? Peter, standing with the 11, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Peter must be heard. His message was of the utmost importance It wasn't weak. He wasn't a mumbling. He wasn't ashamed. He didn't care what the crowd thought of him. Peter was bold. He was aggressive. He was courageous. He was daring. He was fearless. He was resolute. He was Mr. Valiant for the truth. For all you who love the pilgrim's progress. He lifted up his voice. 
Secondly, in this, or thirdly, third sub-point, look what he says. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, here it is, let this be known to you. He's confident in the truth. He's unwavering in knowing that the Bible is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. Peter is concerned in engaging the mind with the truth. This is not merely empty sentimentality. Let this be known to you. Peter knew the truth of Psalm 119, 160. The sum of your word is truth. And every one of your righteous rules endures forever. And so his message that he is going to preach on as he weaves scripture together, it had to penetrate first the minds of the people before it can enter into their hearts. Can we confidently get up and say that? knowing God's word well enough to accurately divide it and call people, demand of people, you need to know this. Not cowering, not apologizing, but boldly as an ambassador of our Lord. He goes even further. Let this be known to you What does he say? And give ear to my words. He's arresting their attention. He's authoritative in his delivery. He is deeply, deeply passionate. He demands their full attention. (laughs) Reminds me of what God said to another pastor through the pen of the Apostle Paul. In Titus chapter two, verse 15, this is what Paul says to him. And I need to find it, two fifteen. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Titus. You're going to pastor. You're going to share God's word with people. Do it with all authority. Make no apologies. You're standing as an ambassador on the authority of God and his word. Let no one disregard you. Remember, brothers and sisters, we are Christ's ambassadors here on this earth. And in our gospel delivery, we must ask ourselves, who do you fear more, God or man? If you fear man, you will shrink back and you will not proclaim the gospel. But if you fear God, you will lift up your voice, demand people's attention, and make the gospel known to a lost world. The problem is we're often too more concerned with unbelievers' feelings than their souls. Their comfort than their eternal destiny. We're so afraid of being persecuted for preaching the truth. Yet I want to, before moving to the next point, encourage us with this. Consider what the author of Hebrews writes. 
for those people who stood up, counted the cost, preached the message. When going through some of the great heroes of the faith, he says this in Hebrews 11, starting in verse 35. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to receive their release so that they may rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom this world is not worthy of. This world isn't worthy of those who boldly proclaim Christ. You want to rise above the world, be like them. Count all things as loss for the sake of knowing Christ Jesus and obeying him. Be an ambassador. Be an ambassador of the king of heaven and earth. Second key to the apostolic method of evangelism Meet people where they're at. We have to know people and meet them where they're at if we're to effectively share the gospel with them. We see this in verse 15 in Acts 2. For these people, Peter going on and saying, are not drunk as you suppose since it's only the third hour of the day. Obviously, he was not from America. Peter's listeners had a problem. They thought those that were filled with the Holy Spirit were drunk. Now, this is what I think about what's going on here. These spirit-indwelled people were so exceedingly happy and joyous. People, what's going on here? They saw, well, they, they must be drunk. Why are they that happy, overjoyed? They had received something that had been promised long ago and it was finally a reality. That's why God living in the heart of a man. So Peter meets his crowd where they're at. That's his jumping off point into the gospel. He has to address the the issue of the people thinking they're drunk. And he uses that to effectively go into his message. Now, with the Jewish audience, they had already some things that they knew. They already believed in the Lord intellectually. They knew of God. They knew he created everything. They had his law. They didn't need convincing that the Bible is the word of God. They believed it. What they needed to know is who, had, who they had to call upon to be saved. Now, this is quite different than when the Apostle Paul goes to another culture, and we see this in Acts chapter 17. They don't know the Lord. As Paul goes to Athens on Mars Hill and proclaims, hey, uh, I see that you're religious people. You have all these idols around, and you even have one to this unknown God. And so that's God that you don't even know about, and you kind of worship in ignorance. I'm going to make him known to you. 
And if you look through what he does, he, he just gives a very biblical definition on the points of who this God is. He created the, the heavens and the earth. He, he's the one who, who made them and sustained them and, and he's, he's both uh, transcendent above all, but yet imminent there with them. He's close at hand. And he moves from that to point to this God became a man and died and he ends it with the resurrection. God has proved that this one is the Lord by raising him from the dead. And so he addresses a different crowd and meets them where they're at. They had to know that background information of God before he can actually engage them with the gospel. We must know our listeners. We must ask them questions. We must discern their worldviews. Only after this can we appropriately address their concerns and use the truth of, of the gospel in an appropriate way. Point three, the third key of apostolic evangelism is this. Point to scripture as the authoritative answer. Point to scripture as the authoritative answer. Notice what Peter does in verses 16 through 21. He quotes from Joel chapter 2 verses 28 through 32. We can get into all sorts of things. I don't think Peter is around carrying a scroll. We can deduce that this man really knew God's word well. All gospel evangelism must be text driven. God's word, God's word has the power to change lives. Not my thoughts, not your thoughts, not our ideas, not our preferences, not a clever way of addressing people not the wisdom of this world. We see this truth explained in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 23 through 25. Peter says, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like, is like grass, and its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the gospel, the good news preached to you. It's God's word that can revive the soul it's God's word, as it says here, that can make the person be born again, go from death to life. Not our words, God's words. Right? Paul knew this. And so he could confidently declare in Romans chapter one, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The gospel, it's the power of God to save lives. God's message of good news, not ours. 
And so we have to read the text. We're resting on the authority of what God has said. Not our delivery, not our clever and crafty arguments, but on God. Notice what he does next. He doesn't just read the text. He moves on to explain the text. So as we point to the scripture as the authority, we first start with scripture by reading it, and then we have to explain it. And he does this in verses 22, as I said, through 24. He explains the last line of what he read in, in Joel, right? The last line in verse 21, and it shall come to pass that all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Well, in this dispensation of time, were they to call on God the Father? They had to call upon Christ and what Christ has done. And so, do you notice what he does in verse 22? Men of Israel, hear these words. Again, demanding their attention Jesus of Nazareth. There it is. There's the name that they must call upon to be saved. They must call upon Jesus to be saved. And God has proven this as a fact by raising him from the dead. That's basically his his interpretation of the text, explaining it. This man you need to call upon to be saved is Jesus, and God proves it by his resurrection from the dead. Scripture needs to be explained to an unbeliever. Why? Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 tells us why. That the natural man, the unbeliever, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to them, and he is not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. They're spiritually deaf and dumb. So therefore we must explain it. We see this actually further brought out in the book of Acts. And so take our mind back maybe, I don't know, two years ago when Phil was in chapter eight. We read the account of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. I want to read this real quick. So Philip ran to the eunuch and heard him reading Isaiah, the prophet. And Philip asked him, do you understand what you are reading? Notice the response. The eunuch said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come and sit with them. Now, the passage of scripture he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before the shearer is silent, he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life was taken away from death. Uh, His life was taken away from the earth. The eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about somebody else? I love verse 35. 
Philip opened his mouth and beginning with the scripture, point one, started with the scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. We read the text, we need to explain the text clearly. Third point of speaking as uh, on behalf of scripture being the authority. We need to cross-reference the text. Cross-reference. We don't stop and end with just one scripture. We overlay scripture upon scripture upon scripture. This is what Peter does considering verses 25 through 28. Scripture is always to be used to interpret Scripture. Peter here quotes from Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11. This is to show the listener that your interpretation is not your own. It fully agrees what God has truly said. As you explain the text, yes, you need to explain it. But upon even more than that, then if you just leave it your own explanation, the listener could walk away, well, that's just your interpretation. I read that text and I think of something else. No, you can't stop there. You have to overlay more scripture on top of it, make it very clear. No, this is not just coming out of my head. This truly is what God has said. And so let me point you to this other verse. Cross-referencing scripture is huge. Consider Jesus when he was tempted. Each time he he gives the answer, no, Satan, I'm not giving in to your temptation. But he had to give a cross-reference text. And so three times to prove his point, no, this is not godly, he quotes from Deuteronomy. He cross-references Deuteronomy. And so read the text, explain the text, cross-reference the text. Four. Repeat. It's like shampoo. Lather, rinse, repeat. He repeats the process. Verses 29 through 33, he explains the cross-reference. And then verses 34 and 35, he gives a further cross-reference by quoting from Psalm 110, verse 1. So simple and yet it takes a lifetime to master. Point four. We need to emphasize the main points of the gospel message. Emphasize the main points of the gospel message. And what are those? I'm gonna give you like four little sub points here. We need to, first of all, um, emphasize the exclusivity of the message. We see this in verses 21 and 22. 21, all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. 22, men of Israel hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God performed through his midst as you yourselves know. He doesn't point to many ways to heaven. One, Jesus the man you know as Jesus of Nazareth, right? Jesus is the only way to heaven. Why, he's both God and man. 
Paul knew this. He wrote in 1 Timothy 2, 5, for there's one God and there's one mediator between God and man, that is the man Christ Jesus. Jesus himself says this in John 14, verse 6. He says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Even in his most famous sermon, Jesus pointed to this fact, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus commands his listeners to do what? Enter by the narrow gate. One gate. It's narrow, very narrow. So narrow because it's only one way in. Only through Jesus. The gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and few find it and enter it. He goes further on to say, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house upon the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house, but it did not fall because it was built upon the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them is like a very foolish, stupid man who built his house upon the sand. The rain fell and the winds came and beat against its house and it fell and great was the fall of it. There's one gate, Christ. There's only one rock to build our spiritual lives upon. Christ and his word. So, In emphasizing the gospel message, this world believes there's many ways to be right with God. Foolishness. One. One savior. One mediator. One man who is both God and man. That's Jesus. So not do we need to point out the exclusivity of the the message, but secondly, we also need to point out to the the cross need to point to the fact that Jesus is a substitute for sinners we see this in verse 23 this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men The cross is the pinnacle of the gospel. It has always been God's plan. We could think in our minds all the way back to Genesis 3 when when sin entered into the human race. And yet the promise was that one day this one born of a woman would come and yes, he would be bruised in the heel. He would die. But it was just temporary. And through that he would crush the head of Satan. On the cross, Jesus was imputed. He took upon himself the sins of the elect of God. And he made atonement. He made a propitiation for those sins. This is the core of what happened. Galatians 3.13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. 
We're under a curse, naturally. We're lawbreakers. That curse is death. In separation from God, to be under his wrath forever in hell. But the good news is here, Christ redeemed us who believe. From the curse of the law, how? By becoming a curse for us. For it is written, there's the cross reference. Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. He, Jesus Christ, it says, for our sake, God the Father made him to be sin, made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin. Why? So that in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. He took our sins paid for it, became the curse, suffered and died in our place so that he can give us his righteousness and we can be stand in a right standing before God, our Father. That's the heart of the gospel. What actually took place on the cross? Third sub point, what do we have to proclaim? Well, not just the Exclusivity of the message, not just what happened on the cross, Jesus being a substitute for sinners, but third, we need to proclaim the resurrection of Jesus. We see this in verses 24 through 35. Why is the resurrection important? It was important in Paul's mind. He says, without the resurrection, our faith is in vain and we are to be pitied above all people. He says that in 1 Corinthians 15. But even speaking on a bigger and deeper basis, the resurrection of Jesus proves that he's God. We see this in Acts chapter 17, verse 31. Paul preaching to the men of Athens, he says, God has fixed a day that he will judge the world in righteousness by a man he has appointed. Who's this man who's going to be the judge, who's going to be Lord? He's given assurance to all by what? By raising him from the dead. It's the resurrection of Jesus that shows that he is God. He is the judge. He's the one we need to be in right standing with. And the resurrection of Jesus does something else. And not just proves that Jesus is God, it it shows that the father accepted his sacrifice on the cross. The debt truly was paid. When Jesus said it was finished, the father said, amen, I agree. Done. And so by believing in him, by having faith in him, our sins are washed away and placed upon Jesus. We see this in Romans chapter four. It says of Jesus, he was delivered up for our trespasses. And get this, he was raised for our justification. We're declared to be just before God because of his resurrection. God accepted his sacrifice. That was from Romans four twenty-five. Fourth sub point. We need to 
show in our gospel message their need for a savior. We see this in verse 36. Verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you have crucified. They need Christ. Why? God is holy, holy, holy. And as such, he commands that we are to be perfect just as the heavenly father is perfect. His eyes, as it says in Habakkuk, are too pure to even look upon evil. God is so just that it says in Proverbs 17, 15, that he who justifies the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. He can't just say, well, okay, I'll just forget about your sin. No, somebody has to die. He is just. Now, the problem is this. God is good. He will demand a penalty for sin. And our problem is we all like sheep have gone astray to our own way. We have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. In short, every man, woman, boy, or girl, every one of us here needs a savior. We need the Lord Jesus. Fifth point, and I have to hurry it up. We need to speak in a way that assaults the conscience. Speak in a way that assaults the conscience of our listeners. And when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Our listeners must go beyond the knowledge that some people out there in the world are sinners and must come to the firm conviction, I'm a sinner. I need a savior. Peter's words had the exact result. They were cut to the heart by the spirit indwelled word of God. The word of God is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. To continue on in that in, in Hebrews 4. It pierces to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and it's able to discern the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. No creature is hidden from his sight. Before God, we are naked and exposed to him to whom we must give an account. God's word cuts us open and reveals to us how God sees us. It's the mirror where we can adequately assess ourselves spiritually. They were cut to the heart. And so we must do this with people. We must ask and, and even use the Ten Commandments as a basis. Have you ever lied? Oh, yeah. Just even a little white lie, yeah? Okay, what's somebody who lies? Well, a liar. Oh, so you're a liar then, you say. You ever thought with lust upon somebody else? Yeah. Now God calls that adultery. So you're an adulterous liar. Why would God let you into heaven? We must come to the, our hearers must come to the conclusion and we ourselves must come to the conclusion that we're a sinner first if we're ever gonna seek after a savior. 
Sixth, we must command and explain repentance. Command and explain repentance. We see this in verses 38 through 39. Peter said to them after they cried out, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. There's the command. We're not to make this optional. God commands all people everywhere to repent. It's from Acts 17.31. Not to repent is to further sin. Not to have faith in God is to only increase your sin. And he explains it. You need the gift of the Holy Spirit. The two go hand in hand. Repent and receive the Holy Spirit. When the Spirit comes, Jesus said in John 16, verse 8, when the Spirit comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. You must first have the Spirit and the Spirit working in your life to be convicted about your sin, to see the righteous standard that God requires and the threat of judgment. And in fact, later on in Acts, in Acts chapter 11, verse 18 uh, Paul explaining, or Peter giving his report about what happened with Cornelius. He, he sums it up by saying this, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance. God had to grant repentance. That leads to life. It is only by being born again by the Spirit and having a new heart that we can see sin rightly. And then the person is equipped to repent. Without the Spirit, we'll make excuses for our sins. And so what is repentance? I'll just leave you with this. Uh, Thomas Watson uh, gives six elements of what true biblical repentance is. You must have a sight of sin. You have to see that you've sinned. You need to have godly sorrow over your sin. You must see and be broken in the heart that you've sinned against God. You need to confess your sin. You need to have shame over your sin. You need to hate your sin. You need to turn away from your sin. Seventh point. Don't stop at a decision, but rather disciple. They interrupted his sermon. And he says this, though, after it. With many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourself from this crooked generation. And we see the result of this, of 3,000 souls being, being added. And what happened? They were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and doctrine. They're being built up in their faith day by day. It's not just a decision, and yes, we must call people for a verdict. Will they repent? Will they trust? Will they believe upon Jesus? You must call them to do that. But it doesn't stop there. The Great Commission, in making disciples, we are called 
to, to teach them to obey all that God has commanded them. In conclusion, turn to Deuteronomy 30. We started there. The beginning of Moses' message to the Israelites, his almost last will and testament before he dies. I want to end there. In Deuteronomy 30, I'm going to read verses 15 through 20. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today, by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you're entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away, and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and to serve them, I declare to you today, you shall surely perish shall not live long in the land that you're going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you both life and death, blessing and the curse. Therefore choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, holding fast to him, For he is your life in the length of your days. That you may dwell in the land of your Lord that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give them. So I call you to a verdict. I call heaven and earth to witness against us. I've given you the keys biblically to go out and share the gospel. I beg you, choose life. Obey. I warn you, if you do not, God will severely discipline you. Why do we think that reading and obeying God's word as a matter of life and death was just something in the Old Testament and not for us today? Today. 